Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm not going to read the, the whole chapter with you. We'll look at it. Actually, today we will bounce around a little bit because we're going to look at this chapter in, in maybe a different way than we normally do, but hopefully you'll be able to follow with me. So um, we're in Nehemiah 4. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, take it. It's our gift to you. And um, we would just ask the kids now, you can go back to your classrooms, K through 8th grade. Uh, you are dismissed while the rest of us turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. We go through books of the Bible here, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We started with Ezra, Nehemiah, which is really one book in the Hebrew Bible. Um, And we started with Ezra chapter 1. We worked through 10 chapters. Now we're in Nehemiah chapter 4. Messages are online. You can download um, the, uh, you get podcasts, MP3, whatever you want. It's on our King's Chapel website. So what began, we're in chapter 4, but what began in chapter 1 was a message from Nehemiah's brother, to tell him that the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down, the gates have burned, burned with fire, the people are in trouble, and they're living in shame. Now, as we saw the past couple weeks, uh, the past week or so, they're under construction. You see, God had raised up a, a, a leader named Nehemiah. God had changed the position of the king at that time, Artaxerxes, a, 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 a Cyprus king, from not allowing the walls to be built to the place of not only allowing it to be built, but he's provided everything to fund the project. And God also stirred the heart of his people to put their shoulders to the work. Although the walls of Jerusalem at this point have been in, in, in despair and in ruins for over 140 years, God was not done with his people. God did not desert the Jews, but gave them strength and wisdom to come through the various trials. God supported his people in the work, not only because of his covenantal love toward them and the promises that he made and the covenant love toward them, but, so you know, the survival of the Jewish people is strategic and tied to the salvation of all mankind. Come forth, Jesus Christ, born of a Jew, born of a virgin, died for our sin, and rose again. So, after a lot of prayer, Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, did a secret assessment of what's going on, and then as we saw last week, Nehemiah springs into action, Nehemiah chapter 3. What I'd like to do is just read one passage from Nehemiah chapter 2, actually, kind of give you a background of what's happening in Nehemiah 4. So turn with me to Nehemiah 2, little background of what's going to happen in chapter 4. Nehemiah is speaking to the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. We pick up at verse 17, chapter 10, verse 17. Then I said to them, his brothers and sisters, Jewish folks, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build a wall of Jerusalem and that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king has spoken to me, gave him permission to go. And they said, let us, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But, verse 19, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, Nehemiah speaking, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and we will build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. 
Chapter 3, we saw last week, is where all that stuff worked out. We saw how there was, Nehemiah gives him this, this speech and encourages him to build. And we saw that it was over 40 different sections of the walls being worked on together in unity. God used various people with, with various different gifts and abilities working together in unity to start building the walls around Jerusalem. The, they needed walls for the safety and security of the city. And it gave, uh, the wall's destruction was a, was, was a, 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 a a way in which uh, God had been seen through the lenses of other people's eyes. You know, where is this God? So they had a lot of derision and a lot of disrespect for the Jewish people because the walls were torn down. God was not getting the glory that was due him. And we saw that people were gathering together. They were, they were serving in different areas. Some people lived in the city and they began to build. Some people came from their surrounding communities and they began to build. All working together for the good work that was before them. But then we see Sanballat, Tobiah, an Arab named Geshem in chapter 2. They become more and more aggressive as God's people begin the work, as God's people continues in the work. The people, the opposition, the enemies beget, get more and more aggressive toward the work of God. And that's where we pick up in our story in chapter 4. The work of God being opposed by the enemies of God. Now, let me, let me just explain to you for a moment why it's so important or what was on the mind and heart and reasons and motives why Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem were opposed to the work. Cyril Barber in his commentary does a great job explaining why this was at such a threat. He says, one of the main highways linking the Tigris-Euphrates River the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley to the north with Egypt in the south and Philistia in the west passes right through Jerusalem. With Jerusalem once more a well-protected city, its very location will attract trade. So once they build a wall, once they have this strategic place, once they, once they just have this protection and security of Jerusalem, he says, it will attract trade and gone will be Samaria's economic supremacy. So what you have is, you have uh, to, uh, Sanballat from Samaria, which is on the north, very concerned about the, the city because he's very concerned about himself. About the prestige and the power that he brings to the table. And he's concerned that the work on the, the walls and the city is going to be a problem for him. In Nehemiah chapter 2, when he finds out that Nehemiah has come with his entourage and that permission from the king has been granted to rebuild, he makes, the Bible makes it very clear. It says he was displeased greatly because someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now listen, if Nehemiah succeeds, the enemy's agenda fails. Okay? Rebuilding the walls, protecting the people will create a safe environment where the word of God is preached, where the worship of God is, is, is done, and once it's implemented, the, the, hopefully there'll be justice, there'll be goodness, there'll be, there'll be the worship of God's people. The law will be in, you know, uh, uh, followed. Sanballat is not interested in justice and goodness. Sanballat is not interested in the seeking the welfare of other people. Those enemies are about exploiting the weak, exploiting uh, 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 you know, in their own gain, for their own gain. Nehemiah is seeking the good of others. Nehemiah is seeking the law of God. Nehemiah is seeking the worship of God. That's a problem. You can't have one with, 
with any other. Someone's going to fail, right? So I think we have, first question we really ask in the sense of, of what's going on here is do we really care about others? Are we so caught up in our worlds? Are we so caught up and consumed with what's going on? Or do we really stop and look and say, what is good? What is right? How can I love and serve others? When you do that, there will be opposition. You can guarantee it. Chapter 4 is where the rubber hits the road. Chapter 4, you know, this was written thousands of years ago. This happened thousands of years ago. It is so true today as it was true in Nehemiah's day. Whenever God's work is done God's way, not only will it lack God's supply, but you can guarantee it will always draw fire and opposition. Then and now. Chapter 4, verse 1 opens up with these words. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was what? Angry greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Jeered, ridiculed, New American Standard mocked. Before we just, you know, look how bad that is, let's look how good that is. Right? I mean, opposition can very well be the evidence that God is doing a work. I'll tell you something else about opposition that you may have not heard. Unfortunately, we think This isn't true, but it really is. Sometimes opposition is the means God uses to show us what's in our hearts. Sometimes God uses opposition to show and to reveal to you and I what's in our hearts. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It has been said that Christians are like tea bags. I mentioned this once before. You never know what they're made of until they're in hot water. Sometimes unchecked anger unbridled selfishness, bitterness, the root of bitterness as the scripture talks about, and other hideous things and ugly things are revealed when we are under opposition. Everyone should shake your head. Yeah, yeah. When people also take kingdom priorities seriously, Satan stirs up agitators to block the work of God. Every good work will be opposed. Every attempt to advance the kingdom, to live on mission, to declare and demonstrate the gospel will be opposed. will be opposed from Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour, looking to seek and, and to devour someone or our own sinful nature, what the Bible calls the flesh, that part of us that does not want to join God on his mission, the part of us that wants to sit back and watch others do it. Not, not living for his glory, but living for our own. Spending time on self, spending money on self, spending our energies on self. So the enemy attack, you have the sinful nature who sits back and just says, ah, let somebody else do it and not join God on the work of mission. But like we said last week, first things first, in order to build our lives, in order to advance the work of the kingdom, we must seek God's glory first. And that's where we leave chapter 3 and begin on chapter 4. And we'll see because of opposition, the work had stopped. They worked through the opposition and continue the work again. And I think, I think we all can agree that when we step out in faith, we start doing the work of God. There's fear, there's discouragement and, and uncertainty that, that opposition brings to our lives, and sometimes we can be paralyzed by it. So let's see 
where we can learn from this text about opposition. What I want to do is I'm going to give you four weapons that are used against God's people, four weapons that are used against us as well, uh, how the work can stop, how opposition is used to stop you in your tracks, and then we'll look at five weapons that we use in, against opposition to move forward in the work. Now, the first one is pretty clear. We saw it in verse 1 and verse 2. They were greatly, Sambai heard the building wall, he was greatly angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, all right? So it begins with psychological warfare. Someone once said that ridicule and mocking is the language of the devil. Have you ever been insulted? Have you ever been insulted and mocked and ridiculed for your faith? I have. I've had from my own family. Ah, you, you know, you're, 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 you'll get over it. It's just a fad you're going through. Oh, you ain't drink that juice, did you? Man, you are brainwashed. Are you kidding me with all that stuff? Goliath used mockery against David, the poor shepherd boy. Brought that sling, was going to take down Goliath. They mocked at him. Jesus was mocked and he was ridiculed by the soldiers at his trial. In fact, they hurled insults at him while he hung on the cross. This is nothing new. There's nothing new for Nehemiah. They had started in chapter 2. But now look in verse, uh, verse 1 and ch- verse 2. Not only is Tobiah mocking and ridiculing, but listen, he's getting a crowd, verse 2. He said this in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria. What are these feeble Jews doing? Right? Let's get everybody to join. Mockery is almost, you know, it's not so much fun when it's alone. It's better when we all join in the ridicule. Let's all make fun of them, right? So he mocks them. What are they doing? Are you kidding me? You can see the army just break out in laughter and fall down rolling on the ground. Now, what do these guys think they're doing? Are you kidding me? You know, it was an attempt to, to humiliate them. It's to, to, to speak down to them. And I, I think they started with psychological warfare because remember, Nehemiah had permission to do this. The king had given permission. I don't think Tobiah and his cronies were so quick to march on Jerusalem and destroy everything. They too can be brought under the king's authority. They are too under the king's authority. So they used psychological warfare. I'm sure, and that's just from knowing how sinful we can be, I'm sure that if they had an opportunity to kick somebody off the wall or to drop a rock on their head and say it was an accident, they probably would do that. But right now, they're using the tongue and verbal threats against them. Who do they think they are? Will they restore it for themselves? Like, can they, you think they really can do it on their own? Will they sacrifice? Is this about who God is? Is God really going to help them through prayer and through worship? Will they finish up in a day? I mean, come on, guys, look at the mess we're in. You don't have a clue what it takes to really do this. And then they end with, will they receive, revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones, and burn ones at that. All right? you, you don't even have the material. Like, it, it, it's rubble. It's a mess. You're never going to get it done. You're way over your head. Who do you guys think you are? You don't even have the right stock, material, and stuff to do this. You're kidding yourself. And then, of course, right on cue, there comes not Tobiah, but his partner, uh, if you read that in verse 4, um, not Sambalat, actually, his, his partner, Tobiah uh, in verse 3, excuse me. He's like, come on, if a fox ran up the wall. He's kind of one of those guys, I think it was uh, Alistair Begg says, you know, I see him as one of those guys who 
just no one really pays attention to. He wants to be in charge. He's not. He's one of those guys that's just a thorn in your side. He thinks he's funny and he's not. Oh, yeah, I got a good one. What if a fox runs up there and the whole wall will come down? And everybody's laughing, thinking you're an idiot. But he wants to join in, you know, the crowd. I think all of us have heard the statement or the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's stupid and wrong. I'll just so you know, I've just mentioned it because that ain't true. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There are one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Okay? There is those whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Words hurt. He says, but Proverbs says, But the tongue of the wise brings healing. So mom, dad, grandma, granddad, Teacher, husband, wife, friend, co-worker, fellow students, your unkind words hurt. And unfortunately, some people are still walking around discouraged and defeated, even at this moment, because of something someone said to you a long time ago. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, an 18th century poet, American poet, said this, A torn jacket is soon mended, but hard words bruise the heart of a child. You see, the enemies taunt their hope in this taunting that they, 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 they mock and they ridicule and they will pour down discouragement so that they can stop the work from moving forward. Family of God, we need to replace those old words. We need to replace the old recordings of our brain. And we need to replace them with gospel truth. You may not be able to control your feelings, but you control your thought life. Philippians says, whatever is true, think on these things. Whatever is just, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever the gospel speaks, whatever is commendable, if there's anything worthy of praise, think of these things. And then Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard in me. He's a preacher of the gospel. Practice these things, then the God of peace will be with you. Mockery. Devastating. Next. Intimidation. Go down with me if you have your Bibles open to verse 7 and 8. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and that the breaches were being or were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So if they were angry before, they are really angry now, right? They all plotted together to fight up, to stir up trouble in Jerusalem. Warren Worsby writes, God's people sometimes have difficulty working together, but the people of the world have no problem uniting in opposition to the work of the Lord. I want you to notice something, verse 7. Sanballat represents Samaria. He's from Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem. The Arabs come from the south. They represent the south. Tobiah is an Ammonite which comes from the east and the Ashdodites come from the west. This is not an accident. What Nehemiah is saying is we are being hemmed in from all sides. From the north, from the south, now from the east, and now from the west. They, they, they want to come and, and, and suck life out of us, assert their power over us. And that's just like the enemy. He does not want to lose power and influence over us. He does not want to lose power and influence. And if mockery does not work, expect intimidation. 
We see it in schools called bullying. We see it in the New York State prison system, which I worked, and the gangs using, uh, um, you know, uh, intimidation. In fact, the rival gangs would work together if they had a common cause. Has mockery and intimidation caused you not to take a stand for the gospel? Are you afraid to speak? Are you intimidated at work? Have people insulted you? Have people said things that are not true? And yet now you're silent. You're afraid. You, you, you don't speak. You don't declare and demonstrate the gospel. Intimidation. Mockery and intimidation. Look at verse 10. It says, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. So in other words, it's working. It's working. Discouragement started to get to the people of God almost to the point where they were going to stop. And let me tell you something. There's nothing that is more detrimental or that, can able, that will be able to stop us from living on mission, doing the work of God, following the heartbeat of God, walking in the footsteps of Jesus, than discouragement. Discouragement. It's a weapon Satan uses against us. Verse 10, look what it says. The word failing, you see in verse 10 it says the failing, right at the, um, right at the beginning in the first sentence. The, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. The word failing uh, carries the idea of staggering and stumbling. And which brings us to our next point. Not only is there intimidation, but there's fatigue. Right? They were failing. Their strength was failing. They, they, they didn't muster up enough strength to press on. And I'll tell you, physical exhaustion, physical drain, being drained physically, it's very easy then to become discouraged when you're tired, does it not? I, I want you to notice in verse 10 when it says that, that just put your eyes up in verse 6. It says that the wall was half done and then they are fatigued. Then they are, their heart is failing. They already did half the wall and all of a sudden they find their strength being sapped. Has that ever happened to you? You get going on something, man, you're all fired up, something God has called you to do. It's going really well and then all of a sudden you hit this brick wall. You hit this brick wall, and all of a sudden your coworker, maybe, or your family member, or, or a neighbor, a classmate, a classmate that you've been pouring your life, and things are going well, and all of a sudden you hit this brick wall, and you're like, ah, why bother? Am I, am I just wasting my time? And there's really no movement in that area of mission. You know, they don't really see the love of Jesus. Whatever it is, and all of a sudden we get, we get bogged down. It'll never get done. The enemy wants to drain you. Now, I'm all about, listen, we need to take rest. I'm all about getting rest. I don't do much of it, but I'm for it. I'm getting ready to get some rest. But, you know, all of us know what it's like to feel fatigued and extremely tired. Elijah, very, very tired, very discouraged. God gives him rest. Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem after a long trip. He rests. Ezra comes after a long journey, and he rests. Rest is so important because when we are fatigued, when we are tired, we can be so discouraged. We need to get rest. Amen? Next, look at what he goes. So you got mockery, intimidation, fatigue, and now look at verse 11 and 12. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions 
and said to us how many times? Ten times. Ten times. You must return to us. You must return. Stop the work. They were, they were afraid. Now, we're not talking about, you know, when we talk about fear, there's the reality of, of fear. There, you know, don't burn, put your hands on the stove. I mean, there, we're, we're not talking about uh, uh, real fear. What we're talking about is fear that trumps your fear in God. The reverence, the response, the, 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 the voice of Jesus, when fear trumps that, when fear uh, sets us back and we're not willing to walk the walk, we're not willing to, to respond on mission with Jesus, we have an unhealthy fear. And sometimes that unhealthy fear could be very, very deceiving. Right? Now here's a spoiler alert, if you haven't read the rest of the story. The wall gets done. If you didn't know that, I'm sorry. But they do. The wall actually gets done. They were afraid, but God does work with them. They work with God, and the wall gets done. Now, in a book called uh, Scared to Life, Douglas Rumford cites this as, uh, as overblown fear. He talks about fears. He did a study. 60%, he says, of our fears are totally unfounded. 60%. 20% are already behind us. 10% are so petty, don't make any difference in our life. Four to five of the remaining 10% are real, but we can't do anything about them. That leaves about 5% of our fears is something that can, that, uh, you know, something we can do. 5%. Now, I'm not sure how accurate, but I think it does point to the reality that fear sometimes deceives us, that we are, see our fears and we don't see our God. And fears sometimes get in our, in, our, in our minds and in our hearts and it's very discouraging and we lose sight of what we are called to do. And we lose sight of pressing on when there is fear. You know, it was fear that led to discouragement that kept Israel from going into the promised land in the first time. In Numbers chapter 13, you know the story, the 10 spies go and check out the land. They come back and report to Moses and the crew. And they say, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. I mean, I don't know how they know that. They just saw it, and they said, oh, well, the land, though which we have gone to spy out, is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are great height. They seem like grasshoppers to us. They were discouraged. They were afraid. Even though God said, take the land, I will give it to you, they were afraid. Moses goes on to, 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 to retell that story. You know what he says? He says in Numbers 32 that the report came back and they were discouraged to the heart. They were discouraged to the heart, the people of Israel. So they did not take the, Lord, the land that the Lord had given them. They were discouraged because they were afraid. Listen, the, this rubble, this broken down walls have been there for a long time. But now when they start the project, what happens is mockery. They ridicule. They, they try to, to psychologically get you twisted and, make, and intimidate you. The fatigue sets in and fear. But here's the good news. We're not defenseless in the fight. God does not leave us unexposed, leaves, leave us exposed and helpless. He gives us weapons. We see Nehemiah stepping up and he does five things. We're going to spend most of our time on the first thing. Uh, but the first thing is very, very important. Our weapon against opposition, against the fear, the intimidation, the mockery, and the fatigue is be a person of prayer. Amen? 
In the first chapter, Nehemiah hears the news. He prays for four months. In chapter two, he's a man of prayer. He's praying in between breaths while he talks to the king. Now in chapter four, there are two prayers, verses five, four and five and verse nine. Look at verse four with me. So he hears about the, the opposition. He turns his heart toward, up toward the Lord and he says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own head and give them up to be plundered in a land where they, they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. And they have provoked you to anger, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, I hope that you read that prayer and go, wow, that's, that's, a, that's, that's some prayer. That's a very interesting prayer. Get them. We could have just said that. would have saved everybody a lot of time. Lord, get them. You know, that would have been easier. But no, he, he prays a very, very interesting prayer. Hopefully, you have a, a lot of discussion in community groups. Now, there are a lot of different ways we can interpret this prayer. But look at that prayer. What can we learn from this prayer? How are we to interpret and understand this prayer of Nehemiah? I'm going to give you a couple of things. You can jot them down. First thing, as you interpret this prayer, as you read through this prayer, as you discuss it in community group, the first thing you need to remember is that this passage shows us how Nehemiah prayed, not necessarily how we should pray. Right? So it's historical. So the question is, is this prescriptive? something we should copy or is this descriptive just telling us of an event that's going on you have to figure that out okay we got to figure that out and you're thinking well i i really like that prayer because there are some people that i would like to pray over like that lord drop the house on them today you know i, I don't know but you know it's it, it, it's a very very challenging prayer jesus taught us to pray matthew 6 the lord's prayer Read the Sermon on the Mount. It's hard after reading the Sermon on the Mount to come up with a prayer like this, I have to admit. Jesus says, love those who persecute you. Bless your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Do good to your enemies. Lord, I pray that they get into a car accident. You know, it's, no, I, that's, not, that's not really things. That's not really in, in the Lord's Prayer right there. So let me give you a couple of things. Number one, as you study this prayer, number one, remember, this is not some local citizen, some mil, you know, uh, ordinary citizen in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is in charge. Nehemiah will become the governor. Nehemiah is, is leader of that community, okay? This is not about someone's personal attacks against you. This is, I believe, which is, I think, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, this is an attack on the community. This is an attack on the governing of Jerusalem, Okay? He's a leader. He's an overseer. He's, he's praying that there, there, would be a, 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 there would be this order and, and, and peace in the land and that God's work would be advanced, not his own personal agenda, number one. And let me tell you, any government leader, yes, there should be mercy and grace, but part of, or maybe most importantly, for a government, for a, a nation, for a people, is justice. People have to pay for the crimes they commit. Otherwise, governments, societies will unravel. Okay? Number one, who's, who's the one praying? Number two, he's honest. 
Nehemiah is sharing as some of the Psalms, David will do the same thing. He's being honest about his prayer. Oh, Lord, God of heaven. You know, he's like, you know, he's like Lord, I'm, I, I am so angry. You know, I'm, I, I, I am just tore up, Lord. I don't want to see them advance. We need to be honest in our prayers. Just a clue, just so you know, God already knows how you feel. You're not hiding it from him anyway. Number three, Nehemiah was well aware that the enemies were fighting against God. God, right? So he asked God to deal with them. There is a fundamental difference between being personally insulted than being a leader and watching the attacks on God's people and the gospel. Just read Matthew 23, Mark 3, 5 with the woe to the the Pharisees and to the religious leaders that were attacking God himself and and they were at least attacking the, the gospel, the centrality of the gospel. Even, even in 2 Timothy 4, Timothy tell, uh, excuse me, Paul tells Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed my personal agenda. Nope. Beware of him, for he strongly opposed our message. Nehemiah knows, like Paul, that's an assault against God. And, and these prayers can only be understood is because they were, they, were, they were zealous for the glory of God. No, he doesn't argue back. He's not trying to retaliate. He's not having this angry rebuttal. He's doing what Romans 12 tells us to do. Vengeance is the Lord. He's upholding justice. Okay? You know, King David wrote a lot of what they call the imprecatory psalms where they're calling down evil. Do you know that King David, though, had opportunity to take vengeance against King Saul? Never did. Sought to bless him even and forgave him. Just something to think about. Remember also Ephesians 6.10. You know the verse. Be strong in the Lord. Your strength is might. Put on the armor of God to stand against the, the devil's schemes. For we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against the, this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. Remember that when we're opposed. And number five, I think one of the most important things about this prayer is Micah 6, 8. You say, Micah 6, 8? Yeah, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Okay, let's be honest. When we see opposition, when we see evil, we get it mixed up. We love justice and we do kindness. But that's not what he's telling us to do. And for me, that's how I like to read this prayer. Yes, we should do the work of justice. God is a God of justice. So to seek justice when there is evil and wrongdoing is appropriate. You can try and do justice unjustly. The means does not justify the ends. But in order to properly seek justice, because that's what Nehemiah is doing, I believe we must have a proper understanding of grace and mercy. Let me illustrate that for you, right? He's seeking justice. He's seeking for the wrongdoers to be brought to account. We have to have an understanding of justice, but also grace and mercy. Let me illustrate, be perfect illustration for you, okay? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, you're ready to go to sleep, you're going to say your nightly prayers. Do you say, oh Lord, do you demand, oh Lord, have justice on me? 
Lord, show me your justice. I, I, I desire your justice. Will you please pour down your justice on me? No, you don't do that. Nobody in this room does that. What do you do? You say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have grace on me. Lord, forgive me of all the stupidity that I've shown today. Please. Right? That's what you do. That's what I do. Therefore, I believe that as we seek justice, we should couple that with the pursuit of hope, of repentance and faith, because that is what we want. The hope that God's justice against others might lead them to repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. So I don't think it's wrong to pray for justice, and I don't think this violates the passage that says we are to to love our enemies. Actually, in order to love your enemies, you should pray that the justice of God leads them to brokenness and to repentance and to faith. Actually, if you think about it, if you don't pray that prayer, that's not really a loving thing to do to leave them in their sin. James Hamilton in his commentary rightly says this, It is loving to desire that God would deliver someone from his or her evil by means of the revelation of his justice against them. Nehemiah's imprecatory prayer, calling down evil, calls for God's justice against Sanballat and Tobiah, wicked opposition to the good purposes of God. God's justice against them may result in their salvation, but if they continue in unrepented sin, God's justice will result in their damnation. Nehemiah prays that they would not continue unpunished in their unrepented sin, end quote. So let me end back with Micah. Do we love justice and do kindness, or do we love kindness and do justice? If we get it wrong, it's about vengeance. And the word kindness in Micah is the word has said. We've talked about that. Loving kindness, loyal kindness, loyal love, covenantal, unfailing love for his people. So we ought to love doing mercy and we must do justice. The other way around, our hearts are just not right. Because what will become of our good moral outrage of our, as we look at the injustices around us, what, that will turn into our own petty Petty projects if we love justice and do kindness. Does what's going on in the Middle East get you outraged? It should. It outrages God. In fact, if you're not, you're either dead or you have some sort of indifference to the things of God. God rightly gets angry towards sin. And we're in the Imago Day, And we should too. The danger, of course, is vindictiveness and cruelty on our part. But we should pray. God is a God of justice, but pray for repentance and salvation. Dr. D.A. Carson said, Nehemiah's prayer seeks both to shield his people from demoralization by reminding them who is in charge and by asking for simple justice. We just need to guard our heart and pray as Jesus would want us to pray. So be a man of prayer. Now we're going to go through the next ones rather quickly. Number two. Have a heart of passion. Look at verse 6 again. It's subtle, but I want you to see it. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Circle the word mind. It really, literally, I don't know why ESV did this. The NIV got it right. Heart. It's that, it's that inclination, that disposition, that determination. So what Nehemiah is saying, they had a passion. They had a, they had a heart passion for the work of God. You see, discouragement and fear push that out. And what we want to do is have a passion and have, a, have it 
you know, drive and, and, and carry us along for the work that God has for us. Pretty soon, as they were building this with one heart, you've got to remember, the enemies were looking up. And all of a sudden, things are changing because they had a mind and a heart to work. Everyone in this room, everyone in this room knows what it's like to do things without your heart in it. And everyone in this room knows that what you need to do before you, you do it with your whole heart, right? I mean, if I'm at Panera and you cut me off in line, you want to get a sandwich ahead of me? I'm not going to be all that really care. You harm one of my kids? You may get a holy, you know what, okay? So there's passion behind what we do, and then there's a drive for what we do. Let me illustrate this for you. Suppose you had a job, and your job every day to go to the factory and open up a bag, and in the bag you'd pour sand, and you'd wrap the string, you tie it up, and move the bag. And you did it every day, opening bag, filling with sand, opening bag, filling with sand. That's all you did every day, all day long. Menial job, boring job, no big deal. Tired of it, it's menial. But what if you're doing that same job, but because the rain is coming, the dam is breaking, the flood is coming, it's going to destroy your village, your friends, your family, your home, and all the businesses. You'll be filling that sandbag a little bit differently, won't you? Family, there are many, many people going to hell without Christ. And God has ordained you and put you in the place a lot of times so that you can love them, demonstrating God's love and forgiveness and kindness and declaring to them the good news about Jesus Christ. Okay? God brought you there. God is making his appeal, the Bible says, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So they had a heart of passion. Third, they, they thought through it practically. Look at verse 9 through 13. We pray to our God, I love this, and set a guard at protection against them night and day. Verse 13. So in the lowest parts or the vulnerable parts of the space behind the wall and open places, that which was vulnerable, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Nehemiah is organizing again and he's getting, you know, he's like, listen, this is what we need to do. We need to come together and we need to like pray to God because that's really important, but we need to get our swords and get our spears and we need to, you know, stand in a hole in the gap. He wants to encourage the people of God. He wants to discourage the opposition so that the building could actually move forward. Let that be a lesson to us. When we're discouraged, one of the things we need to do is find our vulnerable spots. Family, you have them. I have them. Where is it that you are the weakest? Where is it that the wall is is vulnerable in your life? Are you prone to anger and need to work on that? Are you bitter? Satan knows. Are we prone to worrying? We need to work on that. Is drugs, alcohol? Where are you most vulnerable? Where does there need to be a guard in its place so that the enemy is opposed and stopped? Maybe downloading internet software to protect you from places you shouldn't be going. Maybe it's accountability to a brother and sister. Maybe it's rescheduling your life so that you can be involved in community where you can hear Love and truth spoken to you where you can get encouragement. You can be in prayer. Uh, What I love about this passage too, and I won't get into it much, but the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Let's pray to God, get a sword. Verse 20, our God will fight for us. 
Nehemiah, listen, Nehemiah knows God's got to do the fight. Nehemiah knows that God put him in that place. Nehemiah knows that God is working things out. But Nehemiah also knows I got to strategize. I got to figure things out. And you know what? I got to fight the good cause. So grab your sword. Let's pray to God. God will do his part. Let's do our part. We're not talking about salvation. That's a free gift of God. It's one-handed. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God that is working both to do for his good pleasure, right? To work and do of his good pleasure. So he's like, listen, we need to do that. And this is not a passage where we take the gospel and our swords and move forward. That is not what the scripture teaches. It's not advancing the kingdom with a gun, okay? That's not what this, I won't even get into that. It's ridiculous, not even in the New Testament. Let's move on. Number four, response proactively. Verse 14, I love this verse. Listen, and I looked and I rose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That's not how it goes. This is how it goes. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord. He is great. He is awesome. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters, right? Fight for your wives. Fight for your homes. That's what I want to hear. All right, Nehemiah. Let's get it on. That's an encouragement. Listen, don't forget the Lord. Sometimes we forget the Lord. We need someone to say, God's faithful to you. He's been faithful to you in the past. He's been faithful to you in the present. He'll be faithful to you in the future. Come on, snap out of it. Verse 21, they labored. They said, look, you grab, you know, you grab this, you grab that. We'll carry a wheelbarrow. We'll have a sword. Let's fight together. In fact, we won't even, verse 23, we're not even going to change our clothes. They probably stank, but they were safe. Notice where the trumpet guy is. I don't know if you see this in verse uh, 21 through 23. There's a trumpet. What they would do is they would blow the trumpet when they were in trouble. And Nehemiah's like, listen, dude, you got the trumpet. You blow when someone's in trouble and you stay right with me. Nehemiah's willing to lay down his life. Nehemiah's running into battle. He wasn't running from battle. He's running into battle. Keep the trumpet guy with me. And then when you blow the trumpet, we will fight. In his first speech, Britain Prime Minister uh, Winston Churchill said this against the Nazis and, and what was going on. And he says this, We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will tell you, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God gives us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny, Hitler. This is our policy. What is our aim? I'll tell you what it is. One word, victory, victory at all costs. Victory in spite of terror, victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. That's what I'm talking about. And finally, last, we have to move on to the last one, and that's participate together. When we're in opposition, we're not to be left alone. We don't run the sword. That whole thing with the full armor of God is one kid with a sword and with his armor falling off him isn't biblical. We do it as a family. You get the sword. I got the breastplate. Let's fight this battle together. And this we see in verse 16. From that day on, half of the servants worked on construction. The other ones held the spears, the shields, the bows, the coats of mail, which is the armor, the body armor. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah, the whole team. Verse 17, who were building on the wall, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. He's pulling that wheelbarrow with the sword. 
Right? That's what's going on. They're working together. They're taking up the full armor of God together. They're standing against the enemy together. They're working things out together. Right? That's what's happening. So, the enemy's plan is to make you discouraged. To, to, to get you so discouraged that you walk away from the things God has called you to do. To walk away from living on mission with him. To mock you to the point of feeling like you're a failure. So why bother? To intimidate you. To think that your problem is bigger than your God. The enemy wants to use fatigue to make you put off doing something so that it never gets done. To live in fear. To question God's goodness and his mercy and his grace. I'm going to end with this illustration. 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge was the longest suspension bridge in the world. During the beginning stages of the project, 23 people fell putting that bridge together to their deaths. So someone had a bright idea that maybe we should rethink this. I don't know who it was, but good idea. So this is what they did. They, they reorganized and built the largest net ever made and attached it under the area where the men were working. 1930s, I don't know what we're thinking before that. The cost was a lot of money. But it was worth it because 10 more people fell into the net and they were rescued. Not only did it save their lives, but it's been said that the work that had to be done was finished in three-fourths faster time because people were, in no longer, people were no longer living in fear of falling. Family were called to live on mission, making disciples. God will fight for us. We need to be ready in season and out of season in defense of the gospel. In midst of opposition, we need not to be afraid. We need to stick to the mission. And God will give us strength. We need to pray. We need to work together. We need to stand up against the enemy. We need to press on. But how do we do that? What motivates us to stand up and fight? Nehemiah was hated. Nehemiah was ridiculed. Nehemiah was mocked. He was intimidated and he was taunted, yet he was willing to embrace it all for the purpose. For the purpose of God's glory, he was ready to lay down his life for God's work and for God's people. Family, that is the gospel. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, endured hatred from his own people, scorning, ridicule, and was all, all kinds of mocking. He even faced fear and stress for on the night in which he was betrayed, he dropped to his knees, so stressed out, drops of blood flow from his brow. He calls out to his father and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not that I will, but that you will. The cup, the cup, the symbol of wrath, the symbol of judgment, the symbol upon a wrath upon evil and sin. Divine justice being poured out. So Jesus faced opposition, injustice, not by taking up the sword, but by falling on it. He did not defend the justice of God, but entered into it when the wrath of God came down on him on Calvary. Judgment for you and I. He was willing to lay down his life for sinners. He was ridiculed and mocked and despised so that you can be loved, embraced, accepted, and forgiven. First Peter. For this, for to this, you have been called, talking about suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He, Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, 
He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. That is the gospel. That is the gospel for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we have these pictures in scriptures of, of, of men like Nehemiah, who is uh, an, a, a courageous man, a man who lives uh, courageously and he's a leader who leads people, who is willing to, to lay down his life, who's willing to fight the cause, who's willing to defend uh, your glory, who's willing to press on in the work that you have given him to do. But Father, we recognize the only points to a better and a greater Nehemiah. The Lord Jesus Christ who left heaven's glory, who came to a broken world, who was rejected and hated and despised. And rather taking a sword, he laid down his life. Rather than fighting, he became vulnerable and died. Rather than going to a throne, he went to a cross where he died for us and rose Three days later, victorious over sin, death, and hell. Lord Jesus, we pray that you come quickly. Lord, we pray for the injustices around us. We pray with a softened heart, recognizing that we don't want justice upon ourselves. We want to see grace and mercy, Lord. So we pray for the evil in this world, those that are carrying out Satan's demise and uh, 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 Satan's work. We pray against them. We pray that justice would be served, but we pray for the salvation of their souls. We pray that you would grant them repentance and faith as you have granted us repentance and faith, that Christ will be glorified, that many will come to know and love and treasure Jesus. And when this life ends, we can say with Paul, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Lord, we pray mercy and grace. Justice and righteousness upon this place. And we know, Lord Jesus, someday it will reign in the new kingdom. There will be no more injustice, hatred and evil and murder. There will only be righteousness because you, the Prince of Peace, the man of righteousness will reign. Father, until that day, help us live on mission, declaring and demonstrating the gospel to everyone. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.